<clears throat> so today we're going to talk about Kabbalah, and a lot of men and women have a question about what is Kabbalah. So I'm going to read to you um, a Bible verse real quick. It says, For I beheld, and there was no man even among them, and there was no counselor that when I asked of them could answer a word. But I can answer a word. My name is Messiah, and so I'm going to answer what a Kabbalah uh, is. I'm going to tell you two different kinds. Uh, one is called um, Kabbalah. It's in the earth. And uh, when we think about the Kabbalah, what we're thinking about is... Um, uh, actually something that's uh, two different options. One is um, when they read the Bible, a lot of men and women that hate God, what they're looking for is an alternative to God's, uh, what the Bible says. So like for an example is this, they find about Abraham that he's a shepherd. And so they take all the verses of Abraham being a shepherd and like, well, these verses mean shepherd. And they're like, what does it mean to be a shepherd? Like maybe it's someone who is, uh, has a stick. And so they're like, well, this means stick. And then later they're like, okay, we have shepherd and stick. If you put them together, what does it mean? They're like possibly sorcery. And then, or they're like possibly witchcraft or like possible walking. It means walking. Like the higher, they think the higher meaning of God's word is like walking around or something like that. And they might take all the stories of all the kings who ever lived and they'll make like a, a Kabbalah interpretation of like the whole life of that king. So, um, now technically they don't do this because uh, they only do the first five books of the Bible because... It's too hard. And technically, they really only do it in the book of Genesis. Because once they get to the next um, four books after that, it's God's law. And they don't want the law. So what they do is they just kind of skip all that and actually just do Genesis. But they say they do the first five books. But they would do the whole Bible, except they're too lazy. So if they were going to do, like, each king, they would have, like, a different story. They'd be like, well, this king, he was pious. Or, like, well, this king, he was wise. Or, like, this king, he was um, um, just. And so they might be like, oh, well, if pious, wise, and just, well, that was when you put those together. They're like, what we really need is uh, secret uh, societies or secret organizations or a place where we can do things in the dark. And they're like, okay, that's the higher meaning. So when people hate God, the higher meaning for them is actually the lower meaning for us. And so the, the cabal is predominantly filled with lower meanings of the Bible, which is stuff that's like base. It's like, well, let's go into the dark places and have like orgies. That's what they do when they do Kabbalah. Uh, they look for the lower possible meanings and they, they think like, well, what about violence and murder? Can we do that? And they just skip the God's law. So they don't really do Kabbalah. In Kabbalah, they don't really do Kabbalah. But there's a second kind, of, and I call it celestial Kabbalah. And I call it that for a bunch of different reasons, but um, I'm not going to tell you until later in the podcast what that means. So what we can do when we uh, really want to have higher knowledge is this. What we need to have higher knowledge is we need a strong foundation upon which the higher knowledge stands. And I call that a foundation of truth. And the reason I call it a foundation of truth is this. What if one day we found out that something we believed wasn't true, then all the other higher knowledge we have might not be true either. So in order to have higher knowledge, we need a solid foundation of truth. So there's a couple of ways to go about this. Now, one way I tell people is knowledge of God's word. And a lot of you will dispute that, and that's okay. But when we read the Bible, some of it is stuff that just people said. So like Laban said stuff, Abraham said stuff, God said stuff. So when we think about it, there's stuff people said. Let's just put it that way. Simply put, you know, men spoke, women spoke, Rachel spoke, Rebecca spoke, Ruth spoke, Naomi spoke, Samson and Delilah, they spoke, Nehemiah spoke, and it has their words written down. So like, okay, they said those things. So we start off with a foundation of truth that everybody can probably agree on, predominantly. People will be like, okay, people said stuff. And so then what we have is... Um, a need for other kinds of knowledge. And once we have these other kinds of knowledge, then we can have higher knowledge. And so here's how it works. Once we have a solid foundation of truth, then we have higher knowledge upon which uh, the higher knowledge can rest 
um, is uh, principles. We have principles resting on higher knowledge, higher knowledge resting on God's word. And above principles, we typically have higher knowledge, very high knowledge, and you know, higher knowledge until we have the highest possible knowledge that we can possibly have. So in order to have a foundation of truth of any kind, this can refer to God's word, it can refer to chemistry or physics, it can refer to you know interpersonal relationships or raising children. So for instance, if somebody wanted to be like the most skilled or the best at raising children, what they need is a foundation of perfect knowledge, which is everlasting. So here's a few things that we can do with, a, with that right now. We can say, okay, children are born and um, when a child is born, uh, they don't, it's as if they don't know anything. Now, it's not entirely true. They have talents, and later we find out what their talents are. And they have abilities, and later we find out what their abilities are. And also some of them have, like, a personal, like, um, propensity, like uh, a likelihood of doing certain things. Like some children might be interested in sports. Others might be interested in reading. And other children might be interested in, like, uh, uh, doing work, like hard work. And other children might be interested in running around. And other children might not be interested in running as much as maybe uh, doing something else. So... Ultimately, though, all children could run if they wanted to, and all children could play, and all children could read, and all children could do sports if they, I mean, possibly. So we look at these children, and we're like, okay, it seems like they don't know that much. So what do we do? As a parent, we teach them things just before it's required. So when they're two, they start to learn yeses and nos a lot about that time, maybe before, maybe after. But for a couple of years, they're going to say no a whole lot. So what we do is we give them a lot of opportunities where they can make their own choices and they're not going to offend mom or dad. So children need to learn yes and no. And if they don't have those opportunities, then they might just say no to everything. And then they might offend mom and dad because they might want to practice saying no. So what we can do is give them a lot of opportunities and offer them things they don't want. Now, the other thing is children are going to say yes to things that they shouldn't have. So we don't, we don't give a child a knife or a sword. We can give them something that they, they, they shouldn't have, but they can say yes to it and maybe learn from it. Like maybe we can give them something that's um, awkward to hold and they drop it a lot. But if they drop it, it won't hurt them. And then they realize like, okay, this is kind of difficult to hold, like a ball that's made you know, slippery or something like that. And so we give them the different choices and they can learn yeses and nos. And so a parent that's an excellent parent knows that a child's going to say yeses and noes. So instead of when the child turns two, getting angry at them every day, what we can do is give them lots of opportunities to say no every day. Like, do you want this? No. Like every day you find out something that they don't want and then you offer that to them as an option. Do you want this? Yes, this is something they want. Do you want this? No. Do you want something else? Yes. And then you can just let them, ha it's things that they want. But then later it's not just stuff that they have in their hands. It's like planning their day or it's like clothes that they wear or it's like words that they hear. Like, do you want to... Uh, hear me read from a book or do you want me to sing you a song which book do you want and then sometimes that's overwhelming so you offer them different books here's a book do you like this one or this one two choices and now they can say yes to one because you can't read both and they know that maybe they say yes to both because they expect you to read both and they don't care the order but the point is they get to make choices and so then when they get older now it branches out into more types of choices so an excellent parent's going to have a solid foundation of truth when they understand that children are going to make choices and it's best if we prepare them uh, for life with the choices that they make. And we offer offering things to them before the hard times come, before they start saying no to everything. We're prepared before it happens. So before age two, we're prepared to offer them things that they can say no to that we're not offended at. So a foundation of truth is really important. Now, when we're talking about um, religion and things like that, we're looking at a solid foundation of truth. And what we're going to find is when we look at religious disputes, we start to have a very clear foundation of truth regarding one thing. We can't believe everything that we hear, but there's something missing. What do we do when everyone in the whole world is telling us what to believe? We need to learn 
a, a gentle way to say no so they're not offended and they don't keep telling us what to do. Because many of you might not know this, but when you, um, angels, they, they're given tasks by God and angels actually really like being servants of God. And the thought of obeying God to them just makes clear sense. They have no dispute. They don't complain about it. They're not like men and women in the earth. Angels obey God. They, they obey God every day. And God always tells them what to do every day. And they always obey, but they're, it's only like one task. It might take two minutes. It might take four or five hours. You know, it might take, uh, you might do this task five times, like delivering a spirit from earth to heaven. You might do that five times in a day. The whole thing takes 10 minutes and they're done. And now they have the rest of the day to go fuck around and do angel stuff like they're on their own. So angels like doing tasks for God. They like it when God gives them a task. But with many women on the earth, God might never tell you what to do ever. He might like not ever tell you once. So then what do you do if God's not telling you what to do? Well, you can do anything you want. And the rule is we never obey any man. When you start obeying men and women, uh, but let's just say men, we're not talking about parents. We start obeying someone, you have a lot of problems. Like even a king, we don't need to obey a king. So like in Israel, this is going to be really interesting to you to think about. When there's a king, the more that kingdom in Israel is structured and ordered, the more that king is going to have to do, but none of it has to do with him like making rules and policies and laws and telling people to obey him. It's not that. They don't have to obey the king. Now, the king could say, I'm looking for 100,000 men to go to a certain tribe because they have some really big problems. Like, I'll give you an example. In a time of war, they might send 100,000 men and they might say, okay, we need you to go guard the uh, where the ships are coming in for trade. And then they might say, okay, now that there were like little piracy invasions. And now they see that we're not going to take it. So then there's the ships and they're just waiting in the bay. So now they put they might put those 100,000 men on ships and send them out to go talk to the pirates. And when there's 100,000, you know, hardened warriors talking to pirates, the pirates are like, okay, we're going to leave. So maybe they can deal with piracy by like organizing like just a conversation without even war. And so the king can say, I need all of you men to go do this. They don't have to obey. It's better if they do. So we're free. We can always say no. Now, another thing is in time of peace, you might say, Okay, if there's an army of 100,000 men, why would the king send them if there's no battle, no war, no pirates, nothing nothing bad? He might say, well, we need to need 100,000 hard workers. And maybe he could send them through each of the tribes. They could spend five days in each tribe. And you're like, well, that's a long time. That's 60 days. Yeah, that's two months of their life. Plus, they get weekends off, you know. But they could go and imagine how much work 100,000 men could do in those pieces of land. They could be like, all right, let's just go there and anything they need, we'll do it. If they need wells, if they need house repairs then every house and every tribe would be fixed up. And, you know, take two months, but you're like, wow, every house in Israel is perfect. Uh, and they have water and they have wells. Um, the roads are repaired. Like you might say, wow, they fucking, they did a tremendous amount of stuff. And you're like, well, but they're soldiers. Why would you choose soldiers? Well, soldiers spend a lot of their time not doing anything, maybe preparing for war or something. But occasionally, what if they did something that benefited everyone? So this is the kind of the idea. You don't need to obey any man. You don't need to obey the king. Nobody needs to obey anyone. But when we do find someone that tells us what to do, like, hey, it'd be great if you did this, and we do it, it often goes really well. So nobody has to obey a king. But when we have a king that knows what to do, things might go really well for everyone. You know, those 100,000 men, they might get to their own tribe where they live, and then one of those men might get his house repaired. He might have, like, a roof leak and then a wall that's, like, 
the boards need to be re-nailed tighter and it's a lot of work because you have to like pull the wall off it takes a lot of men to pull a wall off and make sure the building's held up so maybe they do all this and then they move on like and then they're like oh we also needed to cut down trees to get lumber like then they can just go do that like a hundred thousand men can do a tremendous amount of work so so for those of you that i'm just going to go into this um that are religious, whether you are religious or not, I'm just going to do a quick thing on the Word of God. The Word of God is what we call perfect knowledge, which is um, everlasting. So we have that knowledge that we can build a foundation of truth on top of that, and that's what we would call the celestial Kabbalah. It's a foundation of truth based on perfect knowledge, which is everlasting, and then upon that rests higher knowledge, principles, higher knowledge, very high knowledge, and you know the highest knowledge might be above that. So it's a lot of knowledge it's more of a stack than i said it's like higher knowledge very high much very high you know quite very high above that and so what we need in order to have a foundation of truth is something that we know is uh always true so like water is wet dirt will get under your fingernails those kinds of things which sound like childhood lessons are actually things that are um perfect knowledge which is everlasting now there's other things that men and women want in science like measuring where stars are and so what they often do is they use telescopes to measure which is a very inaccurate way to measure it and one of the problems is they want to measure with trigonometry but in order to do that you need to have two points of reference minimum it preferred would be three or four or ten but you only have one so you don't have very much of an arc and so there can be a lot of errors in those measurements and so it's not bad to try to do this but it's not going to be perfect knowledge it's everlasting they could remeasure in 10 years and get a different measurement and then if the world is ever able to compare measurements from multiple locations, then they'll have a very different idea of those um, locations of stars. And ultimately, <coughs> I think we all know that in order to measure, all of us that have done uh, uh, astronomy and tried to measure stars, we know that we need a different uh, way of measuring the stars. And then eventually you might try to find the boundary of the universe and try to measure that. And then you'll need to find you'll need a way to find the boundary of the of the universe, and then a way to measure it. And you're not going to do it with telescopes and light, like that. It's going to be a different way. And so you might think of like sonar and radar and stuff like that. But the point is, um, an existing technology is probably not going to work for any of those measurements. Uh, a couple other fields of study. Let's talk about architecture. When we talk about building a house, there's general agreement that a house has different components. So let's just say it's perfect knowledge, it's everlasting. Let's say we know this, that a house needs a roof, a floor, or at least a dirt floor or a wood floor. But let's say it needs a roof and a floor, it needs walls, but it also needs to be sealed on all sides because otherwise air will get in and it could be cold or hot. And also water and snow could get in the house. And so we start to say, okay, that's knowledge that's everlasting. So when you start to really take all of your knowledge, whether it's from the Bible or not, you start to have knowledge that is, you can start to find knowledge that's perfect and everlasting. And when you build that foundation of truth that's really solid, you can start to build higher understanding on top of it. So in architecture, they try to do that. But unfortunately with architecture, what they end up doing is making houses that are actually less structurally sound. They need more continual repairs. They're far more expensive proportionally. It doesn't make any sense, the proportions. They're not long lasting and also they, um, they're not desirable. They have a, there's a lot of problems with them. Now they're large, that's one thing, but the other thing is it's really difficult to heat and cool a large house. And uh, they're incredibly expensive and they don't have to be. So if an architect started over and said, okay, what what is perfect knowledge that's everlasting? Well, one would be that we need options with houses. What if we considered 
different possible design elements, not only visual, but structural. So let's say an architect designed a house that is one option is the most affordable. Another one is the most elegant, if that's what they're going for, because that's what everybody thinks that they want these days in uh, first world countries like the United States or whatever. But then they said, okay, the next one is going to be the one that's the most structurally sound. No matter what happens, it's not going to collapse. And even if it starts to collapse, even if it's made of wood, the engineer might design in things where it's less likely to collapse. And what they'll find is that one of the problems with modern houses is that they use wood that's not fully dried. And so they have to actually, um, and the way they nail it is odd. So they have to actually put in a bunch of metal reinforcement things in the corners. And the houses, they actually flex. And the longer the house is there, the, um, the more shrinkage there is in the wood. And it causes structural uh, problems with the house. So they have to put in more metal. And so you'd say, well, if they're going to do that, they want to use metal because it's too expensive. So again, if we go back to what is the most affordable house? What is the minimal house? What is a, an optimal house for a family of five? What is the one that's the most structurally sound? And then the last option that I was going to say is what is the one that's the longest lasting? The longest lasting house might be the most expensive, but if you just considered all of those other options, now you have a long lasting house that's also structurally sound and affordable. And it's gonna look very similar to these at first, because some engineers might do a half-assed job of this, but then it might end up looking quite a lot different because you might find out you don't need 3,000 or 2,000 square feet to raise, to raise a family of three children. You don't, and you know you don't. And most of the rooms in the house aren't even used. So then you start to say, okay, now we're looking at practical houses. And someone might say, well, that's not for me, I'm rich. Well, that's that's what you said, but the majority of people in the world are going to want a house that's not only affordable, it's structurally sound, it's not going to fall on their heads, and it's also long-lasting because they want a house that when the husband and wife die, they can give to their children or they can sell and they can give that money to someone because houses could last two or 300 years. In fact, if somebody really designed a house well and they found superior wood treatments, they can make houses that last even longer. Because really we're looking at the wood treatment. The reason woods rot in part is because of oxidation maybe or because of uh, moisture getting in the wood. And so we could look at, we could look at wood sealing techniques, S-E-A-L-I-N-G. So we start to have this knowledge and then when we have that foundation of knowledge, which is perfect and everlasting, we start to find things that are really important. Drying the wood before we build a house is really important, but when they build houses these days, the wood is wet. The boards are actually wet and then they shrink and they're not sealed properly because if you seal a wet board, there's, you're sealing water and then the water's gonna come off, it's gonna wash the sealant off. And now you're doing it with a bunch of toxic chemicals and those things do something that's called off-gassing in the house. And then you have toxic chemicals going into people's lungs and they get diseases. And houses, new houses these days, they actually have a lot of off-gassing, mostly from adhesives and uh, other chemicals to treat the um, wood and shit like that. It can also be from sheetrock and paint. So you have paint off-gassing, carpet and all of those off-gassing is toxic chemicals that go into your lungs and make you sick in fact a lot of uh experts on this they've said that you shouldn't have a, a new child in a house for at least two years because at the first two years of a house are so toxic that a, a child could actually um, have terrible problems and we all probably have them whether we're babies children or adults so now we're looking at houses that don't don't poison the people that live in the houses and then we realized the problem with carpet. Yeah, it's slightly more affordable, but that uh, glue, that adhesive they use is fucking toxic. And the whole carpet's made of polysynthetic chemicals anyways, and that's gonna off-gas also. So that's a, another thing about perfect knowledge, which is everlasting. So when we start to think about Kabbalah, what we're looking for is higher knowledge. Well, without the foundation of knowledge, we can't have the higher knowledge. And if we don't have that higher knowledge, we can't have guiding principles with which to guide our life.
So when I talk about celestial Kabbalah, I'm talking about several things. One is when I talk to angels, this is going to sound odd because many of you think that angels are something that only weirdos talk to, like only weirdos imagine this. But when I talk to angels, angels actually have very high knowledge. When they're made by God, they're given very high knowledge and they have a comprehensive set of low, not low knowledge, but a foundation, foundational knowledge. And it goes up like a pyramid. And over their very long life, they can grow in knowledge and wisdom tremendously because they, they can live thousands of years or more and never age. So when I talk to them, they expect the knowledge that I give them or the words that I speak to be perfect and everlasting. And so when we talk about that higher knowledge, we talk about, we're talking about angels and they can travel to any world. They can travel what the earth might say to the stars. You might say the celestial travelers, angels, but really they're heavenly travelers. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I'm going to say is that with men and women in the earth, many of us might one day leave the earth on spaceships and go to other worlds when that technology is invented. And it could be very long from now, but it might only be, you know, 1000 or 10,000 years. And then it might be only very few. So you might say like, well, I'd like to go to another world. Well, here's the question, the three questions. First, if the whole world had knowledge of how to build spaceships, would you trust the military to have that knowledge first of how to build spaceships and weapons? Because they might try to take over the whole goddamn world and have spaceship wars. I mean, a lot of you think that sounds far-fetched, but what we're not talking about is sci-fi movies. What we're talking about is real weapons and real ways to travel. Right now, cars can go forwards and backwards and they can turn left and right. But if you had a spaceship, it's like a helicopter. It can go up and down. The difference is a spaceship can go anywhere in the whole fucking galaxy and has weapons that are fucking vastly superior to what we have now because it's just kind of a consequence of having that higher level of technology. You have higher level uh, weapons. So first thing, would you trust the military? Would you trust foreign governments? No, no one would. Okay, next, would you trust your neighbor? If your neighbor had a spaceship and they just fucking traveled to other worlds, is your neighbor peaceful? Or would you able to go there and just start tearing shit up? I'll give you an example. If your neighbors are a bunch of fucking hillbillies, uh, whether they're liberals or Republicans, or whether they're actually hillbillies or not, if they have a weapon that can blow up a whole fucking planet, would you trust your 17-year-old basement-dwelling Reddit uh, account posting son? No. He's a fucking saboteur. He might just go there and start blowing shit up because he thinks it's funny. Then he might come back and post it on Reddit with pictures and stuff from his iPhone. So we can't trust people to go to other worlds. So the, only the most trusted can go. And then the last thing is, in order to fly a spaceship, you actually have to know a lot about how to build it. Because if you don't know how it works, you can't use it. You might say, well, make the controls easy. Well, if you're a person that wants everything to be done for you, then that probably means someone else is going to go to the other world and you're not going to go. Because when you go to other worlds, it's just other men and women. And, if, and they're like, oh, hi, there's people that just came out of the air. Who are they? where are they from and they might not have spaceship technology yet so you need someone who's going to talk to them and be nice and not be a total dick and the world's filled with extremely rude and insulting people do you want first contact with every world to be done by the most insulting people that you know no then they'll fucking hate everyone from earth you know it's it's just a, a fact that you might say well let's send one representative from each nation well each nation might choose a fucking ambassador that wants to go there and steal their natural resources and lie to them. First thing that those people here might be a lie from ambassadors from every nation. So space travel is not something that we just do casually. So even though I could tell you how to build spaceships to travel to other worlds right now, because I've done it, I know how to build them. I'm not going to because um, we need higher knowledge. So what is that higher knowledge? We need a foundation of perfect knowledge is everlasting. In this case, we need to know about peace and honesty, how to be sincere, truthful, and nonviolent.
You probably need to be a Buddhist if you're going to go to other worlds. Secondly, you need higher knowledge upon that so that you're not just some casual person that can't answer any questions. If you don't have higher knowledge, you probably can't answer any questions. The third thing is you need the guiding principles. And a guiding principle for space travel is going to be honesty and peace, sincerity, nonviolence, gentleness, answering in a gentle way, being non-offensive and non-insulting. Those things are incredibly important. So when we talk about celestial Kabbalah, now we're talking about traveling the stars. Men and women from the earth who eventually might end up traveling to other worlds. And in order to do it, you need higher knowledge. And above that, you need principles. I mean, that's the minimum. <laughs> and for a foundation of truth, you need to have understanding of interpersonal relations, how to communicate, and also how to learn a new language from scratch, a language you've never heard. And how to teach your language in case you have trouble learning their language. You need, you need these basic things. And you also need to know about God. There's really no reason for you to go to another world that you can think of other than to explore. And when you get there, you're going to find that it's other men and other women. And they eat bread and they eat corn and they drink water. And they're a lot like us and they look like us. And you're going to be kind of disappointed because you think everyone's a space alien because you watch too many sci-fi movies. But the truth is they look like us. You might think there's like giant men and tiny men out there and like weird looking men, but you're not going to find them. You're going to find men and women that look exactly like us. There's, um, in this universe, there are other worlds that have men and women on them. There's 8,154,000, no, excuse me, 145,154 worlds that have, uh, men and women and only three have men and women that look different than us. There's only three. That's it. On every other world, they look exactly like us. Pretty much. I mean, technically, there's the Falralkin, so that could be the fourth. And there's other men and women that are from the Earth, and they're in the future, but you're not going to meet them today, so they look slightly different. But the point is, um, really, it's a really clear point that we expect men and women to like be, you know, look different or to have like different natural resources, and they might have slightly different stuff, but predominantly, they're like us, except their worlds haven't been ravaged by. Um, Overconsumption of metals and shit. So you were like, oh, so all the mining companies are gonna be like, fuck yeah, no matter what world we go to, we can start a mining operation and dig big holes. And then what's gonna happen? The water's gonna get poisoned. They might start fracking and other dumb shit. And those people are gonna get poisoned in the water. And then the corporations can be like, well, it's collateral losses. They don't even know the military term. And they're gonna be like, it's acceptable losses. No, it's not. It's not war. And so you want to go to their world and start killing them so you can give them five dollars? Or what about in South America? This is what happened there. Now, for those of you that are peaceful, this will be really important. For those of you that are fucking violent, you're going to say this is unimportant and uninteresting. You're going to turn the podcast off. They went to South America, and in South America, in the jungle, there's a huge variety of plants. And in these this huge variety of plants, they um, the pharmaceutical companies went, and they asked those uh, South Americans to teach them medicine. So you might think that like science figured it all out. That's not true. Science did not figure out pharmaceutical uh medicines no they went to south america and you can read about this this is mainline history nobody even covers it up and then they they told the south americans teach us everything about all of your medicines and then they um the companies then uh sent in conquerors and they conquered those fucking nations and then they gave those people pills instead of plants and those people now lost the knowledge and the only men and women that have it now are the pharmaceutical companies and like i said this is mainline history so what are you going to do when you go to another world and everybody wants to do that again? I mean, it's just stupid when you think about what many women do when they, when they visit like others, they're like, oh, well, this is other worlds. This isn't even the earth. Exactly. It'd probably be worse. 
So, why do we talk about peace when we talk about Kabbalah? Well, predominantly because men and women that practice Kabbalah, and you might call it Jewish mysticism, they don't really do mystical things. They don't really do higher knowledge. What they're doing is the pretense of higher knowledge. Like, I'll give you an example. What if they drew uh, a pyramid, and on the very bottom they wrote Bible, because that's where they get the Kabbalah from. In fact, instead of Bible, they wrote Torah. Instead of Torah, they just wrote the book of Genesis, because that's really what they're getting it from. And then they say, well, in this passage, there was a flood, and so we're gonna call that God, God destroyed. And they're like, what is the higher meaning of that? And they're like, oh, well, maybe if we, instead of, instead of when there's killing, instead of doing it like where everyone can see it, maybe we'll kill in dark rooms and in like dark basements. Like, ah, now God doesn't see. See, they're doing more wickedness and more evil, and they're doing it in secret. But they're calling it higher knowledge. So they put that higher up rather than lower. So in the earth, the actual Kabbalah is lower knowledge. But what we call celestial Kabbalah would be to have a perfect uh, foundation of truth, knowledge that is perfect and everlasting, so that forever and ever, we never have to learn it again.